That's a beautiful hymn, and I would encourage you to perhaps use that hymn and others that we sing uh, as prayers offered to the Lord. Uh, That hymn certainly fits uh, our theme tonight as we continue our study in Romans. We are in chapter 2 this evening, verses 25 through 29. We are working our way through this wonderful book, and we come to the end of this chapter, chapter 2, where... Paul has been addressing primarily the religious person of his day, particularly the religious Jew of his day, his kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul himself, prior to his conversion, would have been characterized as a religious Jew, as he says himself in Philippians chapter 3. And so we know Paul knows of that which he speaks, and he is speaking now to his kinsmen still enchained Uh, to those ideas and that way of thinking as he writes in Romans chapter 2 of those who are clinging to the law, their relationship to the law, and tonight we'll see their relationship particularly to uh, circumcision. This is a huge issue. It was a huge issue in the church. Uh, This idea of Jew and Gentile and what would be required of Gentiles upon their conversion and being brought into The Christian church, we know Acts chapter 15 has one of the most important meetings that took place in the early church to deal with that very question. And central to that question, which is uh, or was the, the relationship of the Gentile to the law of Moses and particularly to circumcision, all of that is sort of in the background tonight as we talk about uh, these verses. And so Paul has been dealing, of course, in these uh, chapters, chapter 1 and 2, uh, with Gentiles, how they view themselves before God whether they're going to be judged by God, how God will judge them, what standard will he use. Remember, he's left them without excuse. They are all guilty before God, whether it be uh, Gentiles who may be God-fearers even, uh, but have no understanding of the gospel, or the pagan who lives on a remote island that we so often hear the questions, well, what happens to that person? God has made himself known, Paul says, in creation so as to leave all men without excuse, because men seeing that which God has made evident and clear did not give thanks to God nor worship God as he deserves. And then in chapter 2, as I've already said, he's dealing with the religious Jew of his day, those who find their um, position before God in the judgment. Remember, that's always the context. In the judgment, they find their position safe because of who they are, their relationship to Abraham, their relationship to the law, etc. Paul is in the midst of dealing with that, of dismantling this uh, great uh, sort of fortress that they have created in uh, their foolishness. And so that's what we're looking at tonight, the last part of his argument where he deals uh, really with a very central issue um, of that day, which is their relationship to God through circumcision and how they came to view that. Uh, The sermon title, Getting to the Heart of the Matter, if you were to search sermon titles, you'd probably see that more than anything. Sometimes we ministers are just, you know, we, we can't be that creative because this really is the heart of the matter when Paul writes in these verses what he does. So we really are getting to the most central issue of understanding of the Jewish mindset in Paul's day. And the argument that he makes, again, is masterful. 
He dismantles their confidence in circumcision, as we'll see in just a few moments. But we need to read those verses first, so please stand as I read verses 25 through 29. 25 through 29. This is God's word, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. All flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, as we come to really the heart of the matter tonight, we pray that our hearts would be open before you to hear, to receive, to rejoice in your word, to know our hearts as you know them, to see those areas of our own lives where we may have confidence or be trusting in something else more or rather than Christ. And so teach us, be our instructor tonight in the things of Christ, and may we receive these things with joy, giving you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I trust you'll remember when we began this section last week, verses 17 through 24, Paul was specifically in these, those verses dealing with the religious Jew of his day and their relationship to the law, or what they perceived to be their relationship with God by the law. And you may remember that I noted that this very much is uh, like the days of man in Babel in Genesis 11, where man in that day built a tower of their own self-image in order to make a name for themselves, a tower which would reach to the heavens and impress God. That is what the Jew did in their relationship with the law. Look at those verses again as they stood in relationship to the law in 17 through 20. You can read through how they were certain of that relationship because of what God had given uniquely to them as a people. The Jews had found that relationship and found comfort and confidence in that relationship. And they had done it throughout their history. Uh, if you look at the history of the Jewish people, it was always about their relationship to God through what God had given to them and not about how they were living their lives. And so they built this great fortress of self-confidence into which they would flee even on the day of judgment, declaring that God would surely not judge them because they stood, because of the law, in a very special relationship with God. 
Now, Paul, you'll remember in verses 21 through 24 of the previous section, absolutely destroyed their argument by pointing out their hypocrisy. He he took away their uh, confidence in these things by showing them that though they claim to be in this special relationship with God because of the law, their disobedience to the law absolutely showed otherwise. Well, this evening we come now to what is at the very core and the very heart and foundation of their false confidence. So if you continue to imagine this great fortress that we talked about last week, Paul has torn down the walls of that fortress of self-confidence and self-deception, as we've seen, by pointing out their hypocrisy. But lo and behold, as the dust clears and the rubble remains, there is still for the religious Jew of Paul's day a deeply rooted foundation upon which that fortress was built. It's at the very center of it. I remember I shared this I know many times over the course of the years I've been here, uh, growing up in Philadelphia, traveling to downtown or other cities. You've probably seen this in other cities anytime a large skyscraper sort of building is being built, Uh, you and I know that when that building begins, the first thing they do is to dig down deeply to create and to build a very strong, what would be in the end an invisible foundation for that skyscraper. Well, that's sort of what we're talking about here. You have the fortress torn down of self-confidence and self-deception, but underneath it all is this foundation, which for the religious Jew would need also to be torn down and destroyed. And that is exactly what Paul seeks to do in verses 25 through 29. For the religious Jew in Paul's day, that foundation was still there. That confidence lay in their view of circumcision as a sign given by God first to Abraham and all who would come from Abraham that would point in from God's perspective perspective to the Lord himself and the work that he will do for this people ultimately in Christ but would become for the religious Jew not just of Paul's day but even before that To the religious Jew, it would simply be an identifying mark that they had an inside track with God because of circumcision. This marked them out. And so as commentators, Robert Haldane, for instance, who was beloved by Dr. Boyce, referenced often in Dr. Boyce's commentary, says this, Paul here pursues the Jew into his very last retreat. There's one last retreat the Jew has to run into as he deals with Paul's arguments, and that is circumcision. Another writer, as quoted in John Mary, says, Paul proceeds here to strip the Jews of the last refuge to which they usually betook themselves, their elusive trust in the possession of circumcision. So that is what we're looking at tonight, the whole issue of circumcision. It is first mentioned here In Paul's letter to the Romans, as we'll see in subsequent weeks, it will be talked about a lot. Abraham's own relationship to circumcision in chapter 4. Even in chapter 3, he begins by saying that circumcision does have value, even as he does here. 
but he'll be dealing with it differently there. Here his intent is to destroy this refuge into which they would run to find their confidence before God on the day of judgment. And so look with me at three basic sort of broad headings. The first is this. We, we need to first understand a proper or have a proper understanding of circumcision. What, what was it? Uh, what did it mean to the Jews in Paul's day? What did it mean originally as God gave this as a sign of his covenant relationship with Abraham? Verse 25 says, for circumcision is indeed of value. So immediately we understand that when Paul destroys this refuge of the religious man in his own day, he is not saying that there was no value in God giving circumcision, the sign of it. It's very important, and we want to see that as we begin tonight. The problem is how they've distorted it. So why was it so important? Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 17, most of you know that this is where the sign of circumcision was given uh, to Abraham by God. I'll read part of this as uh, we look at this this evening. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is in verse 10 now. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. So this is the covenant, he says. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant." Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So very clearly, the picture here is that this is a sign, the language here even in the verses, that this is a sign of God's covenant with Abraham and with those he will call through Abraham. Throughout all their generations, this becomes a sign, a mark upon them physically and really a mark upon all the males who were commanded by God to be circumcised. This was central to their identity. Anyone who wanted to be included and brought into throughout the Old Testament and we know even into the New, that was the great debate, Anyone who wanted to be associated with God's people under the old covenant had to submit, if they were male, had to submit to circumcision. It it literally became the identifying mark in their flesh. And so one can see very easily how that could transition in the mind of the religious Jew of Paul's day and even before that that this was so central, a mark of God's covenant with them, that it meant that they were special and in a special relationship with God. And it could easily, and it did easily, get distorted by them. Now, we're not going to look tonight at uh, some of the arguments that Paul's going to make later in Romans. For instance, in chapter uh, 4 of Romans, he's going to talk about this again, and we're going to look at it when we get to it. 
But he's going to ask questions like, well, was Abraham circumcised before or after the covenant was made? Well, we know the covenant with Abraham was made prior to chapter 17. And so circumcision was given as a sign of the covenant that God had already made with Abraham. And in fact, Paul's going to make the argument in Romans 4 that the righteousness that Abraham possesses was a righteousness which was by faith alone. In other words, Abraham believed God, and God in chapter 15 of Genesis accounted that faith unto him as righteousness. So so that was all prior to circumcision. He's going to make a huge argument in chapter 4. But we don't need to go to all of that right now. What we need to understand is that for the religious Jew of Paul's day, this became such a, 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 an understanding that they were in this relationship with God because they were physically descended from Abraham and bore the mark of the covenant in their bodies. The promises that God were made, was, uh, had made to Abraham and to all of his seed were, were confirmed, marked out by this sign of circumcision. So very gradually, it became viewed as something that they were confident, not in what God had promised to do, ultimately pointing to Christ, not in the work that God would accomplish, not in the reality that this circumcision represented a spiritual reality far beyond the physical sign in their flesh, but merely was trusted as an outward sign and a confidence before God in that outward sign. Now, we know that in Paul's day, they had this belief. They trusted merely in the outward sign of circumcision as their confidence. For instance, and it's probably of all the commentators, Charles Hodge in his commentary probably does give, as some note, the most uh, succinct summary of their belief of the Jews in Paul's day, that they really did view being circumcised as being the mark of belonging to Abraham's family and therefore having a special relationship with God. He writes this, Rabbi Menachem in his commentary on the book of Moses says, our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will see hell. No circumcised man. In another book, it is taught circumcision saves from hell. In the Midrash Tillam, it is said God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. And in the book of Azadoth Jizhak, it is taught that Abraham sits before the gate of hell and does not allow that any circumcised Israelite should enter there. That was the teaching of their rabbis. And so you can see by that teaching how they understood this physical descent through the line of Abraham marked out by circumcision was their confidence on the day of judgment. Abraham would say, if you're circumcised, you don't get to enter hell. You can't come in here. You belong in heaven. 
Now, this went so far, we know, in Paul's day, in the days of our Lord in his earthly ministry, that you remember John 8, as Jesus confronts the scribes and the Pharisees. He's talking about Abraham. He's talking about being a true descendant of Abraham. The Pharisees are arguing with him, saying that Abraham is our father. Remember what Jesus says? If Abraham was your father, then you would believe me. You would love me, he says. Because I come from God, and so you would recognize me and love me. But you are not of Abraham. You are of your father, the devil. Now, Jesus is confronting that mindset. We have a right to judge you, Jesus, who say you're the son of God. We have the right to do that because we are Abraham's offspring. That's how... That's how, how clearly this group understood their relationship to God merely by their outward association with Father Abraham. Jesus, of course, continues to confront them in that great chapter, John chapter 8. And you remember their response. They took up stones ready to kill him. But God, the Father, delivered him from their hands. Well, that's what they came to understand. That's kind of what Paul is attacking here and seeking to destroy. And so then in verses 25 through 27, this whole passage, uh, the first few verses, he does destroy this foundation. And he destroys it by pointing out what God had all along said about the nature of circumcision and the relationship that one has through circumcision with God. So look at these verses with me. We'll go through them very quickly. For circumcision indeed is of value, but only if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now he's going to do this a lot here. He's going to look back and forth, circumcision and uncircumcision. You become, he says, no better than the Gentiles... You become as if you were uncircumcised, no longer related to God through Abraham. If you refuse to obey the law, if you break the law while being circumcised, your circumcision has no value, he says. To trust in it when you're breaking and violating God's law, as he pointed out their hypocrisy before, is to demonstrate that really you're acting like one who is uncircumcised, which is another way of saying in no relationship with God in Paul's argument. But he goes further, and and what he says in the next verses is a logical sort of argument that he takes to its final conclusion. So if a man who is uncircumcised, a Gentile, a pagan, keeps the precepts of the law. Remember, the work of the law is done in the heart of the pagan so that even his conscience accuses him and he is left guilty before God. If that uncircumcised man keeps the precepts of the law, will not his outward uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Won't he be regarded as one who is truly in the line of Abraham rather than the one circumcised who disobeys or breaks the law? Follow further. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you 
who have the written code or the law and circumcision, but break the law. You see his argument, it's very clear, it's very sound. It's masterful, in fact. It is again pointing out their hypocrisy, but it's doing more than that. It is destroying their confidence in circumcision if they refuse to keep the law of God. What he's saying is that circumcision has never, ever been about merely an outward act or an outward display of belonging to God through something done in their flesh. It has always, from God's perspective, been about the heart. It's always been about what God does in the heart. When he changes the heart, and we'll look at a few verses in a moment, when he changes and transforms the heart from a heart that is of stone, refusing to obey God's law, to walk in obedience to what he has commanded, to now being, as we saw in our confession, someone who delights in the law of God and in doing the works of that law for the honor and glory of God. You see, they had confused it all from the very beginning, and Paul is pointing that out. For instance, these are God's warnings all throughout the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, the Lord says very clearly, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and chose their offspring after them, the covenant of circumcision. You, above all peoples, as you are this day, circumcise, therefore, he says, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. He commands them to do what only God will do. But he's reminding them of what God's intent was from the very beginning. This physical act done in the body was pointing to and representing a spiritual reality in the heart of his people, a transformation of that heart by the grace of God. In Jeremiah chapter 9, a chapter that in the earlier part of this chapter speaks about the nature of man's heart. Behold, he says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all of those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in their heart. You see, again, the clear reference here, the problem has always been their tendency, and, and brothers and sisters, this is not a Jewish problem only. This is a human problem. The problem has always been in the tendency to look at the outward signs as themselves being the reality rather than what they point to, which is the work of God's grace in the hearts of his people. 
And so John Mary summarizes it this way, this Paul destroying this foundation. He's pointed the hypocrisy out. He's shown how it's impossible really to have a confidence in circumcision if you refuse to obey the law because circumcision was never about the mere outward sign. Murray says this, the practicing of the law, therefore, which makes circumcision profitable is the fulfillment of the condition of faith and obedience apart from which the claim to the promises and grace and privileges of the covenant was presumption and mockery. You see, Murray summarizes Paul's argument. It is a mockery to say that we are Abraham's seed. We are followers. We belong to Father Abraham. Because of that, we're acceptable to God, while at the same time refusing to obey the commands of God. That position gives away the true measure of their heart. They, their hearts are far from him. Their hearts remain unchanged. And that was the very issue that Jesus was dealing with in John chapter 8. He was dealing with the hardened hearts of Pharisees who were so stuck on believing they had an in with God because of their relationship that they perceived they had with Abraham. And yet, as Jesus says, Abraham longed to see my day and rejoiced in it. If Abraham were standing there, he would have rejoiced to see the Messiah is what Jesus said. But you have rejected me. And demonstrated yourselves then truly to be not of Abraham, but children of your father, the devil. Paul is not saying the same thing here as Jesus said, but it really is the same in the end. They are not true children of Abraham. So thirdly, what then does Paul say? What, what is a true Jew then, according to Paul? Now, remember, in chapter 2, verse 17 is the first time he, he introduces the term Jew, the religious person of his day. That's what he means. He means the religious person believing themselves to be in covenant relationship with God through Abraham. That's who he's talking about. What then to Paul is a true Jew? You see that his answer then in verses 28 and 29. Verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision, nor has it ever been, something that is outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the law or the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. This is always what it meant. To be a true descendant of Abraham, to be a true Jew, is to be one who has the heart circumcised by God, the heart of stone removed as we just confessed together, the heart of flesh given to us out of the abundance of his grace, and from that heart of flesh flows forth everything, faith, repentance unto life, obedience and delight in the law of God. This is the very issue that Paul was dealing with. Their hypocrisy betrayed them. And this foundation now Paul has utterly destroyed. 
so that no one can truly, reading these words, find any confidence in the mere outward sign of circumcision. Because all along, God has called for the circumcision of the human heart, the replacement of the heart of stone with the heart of flesh, the very new covenant promises that God speaks to us in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 37, so many other places. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. You see, that's always been behind this outward sign. It's always been. Abraham believed in chapter 15. The sign was given in chapter 17 as a demonstration of Abraham's very faith and the promises that God had made to him. His heart was already changed, already transformed. And the sign was given to mark him out as belonging to God, devoted to God, loving God, obeying God. Jeremiah 4.4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, of men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Let my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. He's confronting them for their sin in Jeremiah's day because they were doing the same thing that they were doing in Paul's day. They were resting, they were confident in merely the outward sign and not the spiritual reality to which it pointed. And so there's one final thing to note before we make application, and it really does come from this last verse, the very last part of the last verse. People say as they read this, his praise is not from man, but from God. What does that mean? What is Paul saying? I think commentators have rightly assessed John Mary points this out as he quotes other commentators that there is a wordplay that's going on here. Remember, if you look at 17 through 29, he's really identifying what is a Jew. He's talking about the word Jew. He's talking about that who descended from Abraham. He's answering the question, what, what is that person? And he's doing a wordplay here. And this is the way they say it. It is not at first sight apparent why Paul has added the clause whose praise is not from men, but from God. But we must remember that he began his address to the Jew in verse 17 by an allusion to the name on which he prided himself. Thou art called a Jew. And that he has just described in this verse the Jew that is worthy to be so called. What can be more natural or more like Paul's style than a renewed reference to the meaning of the name Jew? When Leah bore her fourth son, she said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, Genesis 29. When Jacob lay dying, this was the beginning of his blessing upon Judah. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Paul, in like manner, alluding to the meaning of the name, says of the true Jew that his praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, man delights in and looks at outward things. It's our tendency all of the time to do this. We're impressed by the outward appearance, by outward things. But the Bible says that God looks at the heart and delights in the one who is a true Jew, 
Judah, whose heart is circumcised, which is the work of God's spirit alone. It's Paul's way of saying that all praise ultimately belongs to God. And for God to praise this one who is a true Jew, according to the teachings of Scripture, is to say that God delights in the one whose heart has been circumcised and changed, if you will, from the inside out. And so two things as we close then this evening, two things that are obvious First of all, do not ever trust in mere outward signs. There's nothing wrong with circumcision. It is what God was pleased to do in the Old Covenant. Its New Testament counterpart is baptism. There's nothing wrong with baptism. We believe in baptism. We look to our baptism as we remember the promises of God, but not as our confidence, but as we remember what God has done and the promises that he has made. We are never to trust in mere outward signs. Now, as I look around there, I'm 100% confident that no one here tonight is doing what Paul is writing about. No one is looking to their circumcision tonight and saying, my confidence, my sure confidence before God is in my circumcision. But remember, this is not just a Jewish problem. The tendency we all have as human beings is to look at the outward appearance, the outward sign, to trust in outward things. And so we can look to our baptism in the wrong way as some sort of mark that God has put upon us, whether as infants or later upon our profession of faith. And we can say, I'm confident I will stand before God without fear of his judgment because I was baptized. That ought not to be ever our confidence. It's what baptism points to, the forgiveness of our sins, the cleansing water of the Holy Spirit, etc., all of that. We should not look to our attendance, attendance at church, faithfulness in anything. Our relationships are a connection to various churches, whether this one or any church, the good works that we do. None of these things are worthy to look at as the foundation of our lives True signs are empty without Jesus. True signs given by God to point us to his promises, his faithfulness, are all empty without Jesus and obedience to him. We can see what Paul does as he deals with this later in the book of Galatians. It's worth reading if you want to understand more about what Paul says about circumcision and the relationship of circumcision to the true Jew. He says this in chapter 5, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, that is, these Jewish people were coming in, the Judaizers were coming into the churches of Galatia, they were saying you've got to be circumcised if you're going to be a true follower of Jesus. He says, If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated then to keep the whole law You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You see how he destroys that argument of the Judaizers by demanding that these 
uh, people believe or, or accept circumcision and, and submit to their teachings, they were forsaking Christ. They were severed from him. The language is very interesting in Galatians 5. And then the verses read earlier, very briefly, it is those from Galatians 6 who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the, for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see what Paul does. He goes to the heart of the matter. He says these outward signs don't mean anything. They don't give you any confidence before God. They count for nothing. The only thing that counts, Paul says, not circumcision, not uncircumcision, but he says in verse 15, a new creation. That's the only thing that counts. The work of God, the transforming work of God's spirit, transforming our lives, giving us new hearts, and out of that issuing forth everything of which the Bible speaks. And then he says this in verse 16 of chapter 6 of Galatians, and, and I don't have time to go into it. I'll leave it to be as it is. But listen to how, remember here in Romans, he says, what is a true Jew? Listen to what he says here. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. That simple statement says that what God is doing in this new work ushered through the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, breaking down the middle wall of partition, gathering Gentile and Jew alike, he's creating the true Israel of God, which is not marked out by outward signs like circumcision, but by a transformed heart. That statement is stunning, will have impact upon a lot of what we study in Romans, especially 9 through 11 as we get to that. This past week, as we were having our fire extinguishers marked and inspected, the man who came to our uh, particular place, I think Pastor Fisher saw him for a brief moment, but he had all the markings of a, an Orthodox Jew. He had the, 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 the strings that coming down from his garments, he had the yarmulke on, he had the facial hair, all of that was there. And, and he came in and he said, you, you guys here, you, you study, you study God, you study God? I said, yes, we, we study his word. He says, oh, I, I am studying so much. He says, you, have you heard of the Rambam? And I, I hadn't. Have you heard of Rambam? I haven't heard of it. It's a different name of someone I have heard of who was responsible for writing what's called the Mishnah Torah, which is essentially the oral traditions of the law. It's a combination of the, the Torah and all the laws in the Torah and then all of these oral laws that were given. The Rambam is responsible for writing all of those out. And this document, this book, this man revered greatly. He says, I, I love what the Rambam has done. What he, he has done, he's taking all of these laws. He said, you talk about the law? I said, yes, we talk about the law, but we really talk about what the law points to. We, I tried to say we talk about Christ and how he fulfilled, tried to do all of that. But he kept coming back, kept saying, Rambam, Rambam. And he said, this is what he said. He said, I'm reading that. I want to do every law that is here. I want to do it all. I want to do it all. And I said to him, you're never going to be able to do it. 
I said, God's standard is perfection. Do you ever think you'll ever perfectly be able to do everything that the Rambam wrote out? And he just shook his head. He just, he left. He didn't answer the question. But I said, you'll never be able because God's standard is perfection. How will you ever have confidence that you've kept every single law? There are thousands of laws in this document that he is giving himself to study. He said, this study is very hard. I said, yeah, it is hard. In fact, it's impossible. And to trust in your own obedience to the law is to do nothing less than what the Jews were doing in Paul's day, to find their confidence in their obedience and not in what God has done. So then, what is your true foundation tonight? This is the key question I think Paul drives us to. He's just destroyed the fortress itself that they would run into, their relationship to the law. He's now utterly obliterated the foundation upon which that fortress was built. There's nothing else standing. Remember, Paul's context is final judgment. How will you stand in the final judgment? So I ask you tonight, how will you stand? What are you trusting in? This is his whole point. How will you stand in the final judgment? The only way we can stand, of course, is through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other foundation upon which our lives can be built and upon which we can stand with great confidence in that day. And so be careful as you think about these outward forms and what you're trusting in. Is what you're trusting in tonight as you sit here, are you confident that as everything else is taken out and shaken and removed from your life, that in the end there will be this foundation that goes deep in your heart and life that is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That will be the only foundation upon which you will stand in the day of judgment. But you also have to stand in this life, and you also have to live in this life. As Pastor Fisher reminded us this morning, as we speak to our own souls, why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. The psalmist is saying exactly what Paul's saying. Everything that I've said tonight is what the psalmist is saying. Your hope is in God in this life, the trials and tribulations of this life. Your hope is only in him. Put your hope in him as your only foundation. You will not find refuge in any outward, mere outward religion, obedience to laws, no matter how many they are. You will not find your refuge in this life, in the storms of this life, in the outward signs of this life, even the signs that God has given to us, which are good. If you build your life on anything other than Christ, you will falter. You will not stand in the day of trial and testing. I think back to all of the services that I've gone to because I come from a Roman Catholic background. You know most of my family, extended family, are all Roman Catholic. So you know any event that I experience and go to is always in a Roman Catholic church. And when I go to funerals especially, where people are confronted face-to-face -face with death and their own mortality... It's stunning as I watch people just mingle about without a care in the world because I know what they're thinking. I've talked to many of them, family members. They are confident when they get to that place 
when they die, when their body goes into the ground or is cremated, when they stand before the judgment, their confidence is, I was baptized in the Roman Catholic Church. I'm safe. I went to communion and confession all my life. I'm safe. I prayed to the saints. I did all of these things. I'm just fine. And if you listen carefully to the order of service for the Roman Catholic Mass during a funeral, everything they say says that. Their declaration in the very beginning of the service, as the coffin is up there and the body is there, as they sprinkle it with their, uh, you know, their incense and the waters that they use, all of them say the same thing. He's in heaven, she's in heaven because they were baptized. That's it. Not because of Christ or what Christ has done, it's because they were baptized. It's no different than what Paul's dealing with here. Brothers and sisters, that is no foundation upon which to rest, not in this life or in the life to come. To mix metaphors, Matthew 7 says, if you build your life upon the shifting sands, Rather than upon the rock, when the storms of life come, they will all falter and fail. But if you build your life upon the rock, which is Christ, and your love for and obedience to him, that will stand. When everything else is blown down in the tribulations of this life, that will stand. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Now, Paul hasn't yet gotten there, but that's where we're going. He's taking us, having destroyed the foundation, he's going to rebuild it now, beginning in chapter 3. And we'll see that in the weeks to come. Let us pray. Father, we know tonight that there is no other foundation upon which our lives can be built, where we can stand in the judgment with confidence and where we can stand in this life with great hope. No other confidence do we have, no other boasting but in the cross of Christ and the work of Christ on our behalf. May it be so for every single person here tonight and those listening at a distance that each would understand, would examine their own lives and every other confidence would be shaken and broken down. And may what we find at the very core and foundation, the very heart of our lives, may we find the foundation which is Christ alone and build our lives upon that by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.